Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Robbie Cape is on today's What Fuels You podcast. He's a husband, a father, a Microsoft veteran. He was CEO and co-founder of Cozy, which was sold to Time Inc. in 2014. And now Robbie has gone on to become a co-founder and CEO again at 98.6, which is revolutionizing primary care and making healthcare accessible and affordable for all. Thanks, Robbie. Welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Shauna. You're welcome. So we're going to start with Rapid Fire. What's your favorite podcast? My favorite podcast is Malcolm's uh, podcast, Revisionist History. Okay. And what book are you currently reading? I'm reading one of the Gabriel Alon uh, series books now uh, about this amazing Israeli uh, spy. So it's pleasure uh, reading. It's, it's a series. That's right. The, the, the most meaningful book that I finished recently was uh, a book called Sapiens, which I think oh. is probably the best book that I've ever read. I need to read that. That was on the list for my book club, but we didn't choose it. So Harari, like this book, will could literally change your life. Okay, done and done. Are you more of a mountain guy or water? I, I love mountains and I love water, although I tend to prefer, like if I'm given the choice on a given Saturday or Sunday, I will likely end up going to water just because when I'm on the water, I'm likely to end up being horizontal. Uh, <laughs> so and you relaxing. prefer being horizontal versus vertical. That's right. Donuts or cupcakes? Oh, donuts. And the donuts that you're upset I didn't bring you are the, what, what are they called? Uh, these are the general porpoise. It's like right I next door. To, and I, 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 I think you, you need to like give 10 of these to everyone. But I'm a sugar guests. addict and I'm trying really well, hard. Well, I didn't say you need to. No, but I can't resist. One. If I go in there, I'll be eating them. It's no boy now. Um, if you could have lunch with anyone who is no longer with us, who would that be? That's easy. Is it a family member? It is not. It's Ellie Wiesel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I actually had an opportunity to talk to Ellie Wiesel. Um, I spent about a half an hour with him when I was um, in college. We actually had him as a, as a speaker, and I was on the leadership team at Hillel at the time, and we invited him to, to come. So I got to spend a half an hour with him before he went on stage. And it was phenomenal, and I'd want to spend an hour with him talking to him about his life and about his vision for the future. Yeah. I can hear the about. I can hear the Canada, which we're going to talk about later. I don't think I've ever heard it before. I have, like, a headphone on. Um, so, Canada, do you speak any other languages? I do. Um, I can speak French, although only passingly. Oh. Um, I can speak Hebrew, although also passingly. Wow. Uh, I studied Yiddish um, as a child. That's a thing? So through uh, elementary and high school. <laughs> that's right. I actually know what that means. Uh, so, yeah, we took, uh, both Bonnie and I both took uh, Yiddish in school. Oh, I didn't um, realize that was a thing. somewhat of a dying language, yeah. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Or so, an ambivert? That's a thing. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that was a thing. If if I had to to choose, I'd say that I'm both, and it really depends on, on the context. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't love these labels that, that are binary. I think people are way more complex than one or the other. Uh, left 
to choose. Like if, if you asked me a more pointed question, which was, you know, Robbie, if you had to choose between hanging out with yourself for an hour versus spending an hour with friends, which would you choose? I'd probably choose to spend an hour reading a book by myself. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, I tend to like to solve problems in my head. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, these two have things you read the book make Quiet? me... I have not. That's a book that kind of got me into this question because it's about introversion and it's actually fascinating talking about how our society celebrates extroversion and per- that personality is really something we've just started to really focus on. And- yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of people who've met me through through business or who, uh, you know, examine me... Um, as I go through my day, see me spending a lot of time with people. I tend to spend my entire day with people and I don't spend any time alone. And so they look at that and look at my interactions at the office and they say, oh, you know, Robbie's clearly an extrovert. I would put you in that category. Absolutely. Gregarious or, you know, very um, open and direct, which are all sort of elements of of an extrovert. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I tend to work out problems in my head, Mm -hmm. uh, which is an introvert quality. That is a characteristic of an introvert. So let's start from the beginning. So you grew up where? I grew up in Montreal. In Montreal. And that's where you learned French? Yes. Yeah, so it was a requirement yeah. uh, when we grew up in Montreal, and it still is a requirement, that you had to study French mm-hmm. And uh, how, how much is being law. Canadian a part of your identity? <sighs> or the dual citizenship, I guess? I, I think that Montreal is much more part of our identity, and I think of both Bonnie and me in this regard, because we're both from Montreal. We're Montrealers. Mm-hmm. And even when we were Montrealers, we felt like Montrealers first. Um, more than Canadian. More than Canadian, yeah. yeah. Well, it's like a New Yorker. That's right. And and so I, I associate very much with Montreal, and that almost disassociates yeah, uh, me from category. a lot of other Canadians. There's not a lot of Canadiania in, in, in my life. Yeah. And so you have siblings? Yeah, I have an older brother uh, and an older sister. So you're the baby? I am. What are you like when you're in the family dynamic? As I've aged, I'd say that I try hard to sit back when I'm in the family dynamic. Um, <laughs> I, I try to put much less pressure on myself to contribute and just take it all in. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of trying to get a word in, it's very difficult when my family gets together to get a word in. Yeah, my family uh, is the same. We're a very way. intense, uh, talkative family with disagreements on just about anything and everything. And the interesting thing is all the cousins. So the next generation is us times 10. Interesting. I'd love to meet them. I find your energy uh, refreshing. Thank you. Yeah. Tell me about your parents. Are you more like your mom, your dad? Are they both living? Both of my parents are living. Mm-hmm. Um, they both live in Montreal. They are no longer together, so they separated when I was in college, which was uh, a somewhat traumatic experience for me. Uh, there still is some trauma involved in that, but we might need a couch to to you could lay get, down. Get in. I'm sure to, Matt to would be fine with you laying talk down. Talk about that. Did, were you surprised when they got separated, or did was that like, oh, it's a long overdue? Oh no, everyone was surprised. They were I was that surprised. Couple. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, like there were friends of mine who literally still tell me that they cannot even believe it. Yeah. Um, yeah. They were very much that couple. But now that you're married and you're, you and Bonnie have been together how many years? Uh, we're, let's see, what is it now? You better get this right. Uh, Sorry, Bonnie. We would have prepped him for this part. <laughs> I have to do the something, math. Something, 20-something years. Yeah. A long time. 20-something. 20-something 20 20 something years. So a yeah. long time. So probably when you were in college, it felt 
more painful, not that it doesn't now, but that you might be more reflective now to understand that marriage is not always easy, right? You know, marriage takes a lot of work. There's right. no question about it. And I, I tell everyone uh, and anyone who asks uh, that uh, it's just like any other partnership. You know, you're going you're gonna to have to put an incredible amount of time and energy uh, for it to continue to, to survive. Yeah. And so if I were your friend as a little kid, what were you like then? On the playground, did you go to private school or public school? I never refer to it as a private school because the private schools were the fancy schools. I went to a parochial school, okay, uh, which very much felt like a public school, but it was a Jewish day school, okay. Um, and I, I went to that that Jewish school from pre-K through the end of high school. Uh, and Bonnie, my wife, went to the same school. She was a year ahead of me um, at the same school. And how many kids were in your graduating class? We had 93 kids in our graduating class. So a class. small school. Yeah, relatively Are small. Are you friends with these kids still? Some of them, Are yeah. Are other men? 100%. I had dinner with uh, one of my very, very close friends from high school uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and there's another close friend that I'm in touch with. As I said, I'm a little bit more of an introvert, so I tend not to put as much effort into staying in touch with all of my old friends. But whenever yeah. we do see each other, it's... As if no time has passed. And would they be, how would they describe you? If they were sitting next to us, would they say, I had no doubt that this would be where Robbie's sitting today? Obviously, maybe not in Seattle, but this successful tech entrepreneur. So I'll, I'll tell you a, a short story, which actually okay. kind of speaks to this. Um, I, I was on the phone back uh, probably about nine, ten years ago, trying to make plans with this friend of mine. Her name is Gail Flans. Uh, we were going to be visiting her in Florida. And I was telling her about the fact that I recently left Microsoft and I was building this company now um, and having a wonderful time. And she asked me all about it. And then she said, you know, Robbie, when you went to Microsoft, all of us from high school uh, were wondering what you were doing at Microsoft because we all knew that you were going to run your own business. Interesting. My my family is in the cosmetics and skincare business. Uh, and, and so back then it was just, you know, Robbie is going to be an entrepreneur. Robbie is going to be a businessman. Yeah. Do I know the cosmetics company? You probably don't. You, you certainly know one of the lines that, that my family, uh, used to own in Canada. My family was the Neutrogena licensee in Canada ah. for almost 30 years. So they owned the Canadian brand Neutrogena. Okay. Um, and that was half of their business. Um, and the other half was a line of cosmetics called Marcel mm -hmm. that is uh, almost exclusively. It's no longer exclusively. You can now buy Marcel on, on Amazon. Uh, but it's not available in any retail stores in okay. the United States, but it's everywhere in Canada. So just hearing that, my assumption is you were raised in a family that had some money. Am I right? Or is that not the right assumption? Certainly, I didn't feel like I was missing anything. But it wasn't like, oh, we're the like, wealthier family. Absolutely not. I mean, my father believed that we should be brought up to very much uh, understand the value of a single dollar. Um, and he continued to feel strongly about that, even as each of us went into adulthood on our own. Uh, so as young children, my parents, both my father and my mother, were constantly evaluating the way of life that they were living 
in the context of how it would reflect on the values that the children would develop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all the way down to the, the cars that they drove, um, to the restaurants that we would eat at, it was never about what we could afford. It was always about what will teach our kids the values that we want them to have and have them understand the value of the dollar, you know, to vacations that we went on, places we ate. I mean, literally everything. This is why I'm asking this is because um, I think it's difficult to raise kids uh, with grit and drive and hunger when you're raising them in certain environments or when they know that there's potential money in the home. That's an important thing that I think is relevant. And my guess is that you're doing a really good job of it because I've met your kids. Yeah. um, You know, we both, uh, Bonnie um, and I learned a great deal from our parents on this front. We believe that it's much, much more difficult to teach your kids the values that we want our kids to have when you do have an affluent household. It's much more difficult to say no when you can afford it. It's much more difficult not to take that vacation uh, that you would love to take uh, because it sends the wrong message to your kids. So and do you I, not and, take and the I vacations? wouldn't say, I certainly wouldn't go so far to say that we're as good as my parents were. I'd say we've gotten a little bit soft and we will take a vacation that my parents would have never taken us on, even though they could have afforded it. But we try. Mm-hmm. We try really, really, really hard. And it's it's a daily challenge yeah, for us. I, I totally get that. So um, your mom and dad both sound like they were very strong influences, but who are you more like? Well, just from a gender perspective, I think it's hard it's hard to answer that as uh, as anything other than my father. I mean, we're both male. He built a company. I'm trying to build a company. Uh, he went to work every day, and he still does, and he will go to work every day wow. until the day he dies. Um, my mother stayed at home and raised the kids, which was an exceptionally difficult um, problem for her, given what her three kids looked like. So just when when you look at roles and identity, certainly I look more like my father. However, there's an uh, incredible number of values that... I learned from my mother that I talk about every day, just like I talk about some of the things that my father tried really hard to teach me. For example, often at work, rarely does a day go by at work that I don't mention this phrase that my mother taught me, which is that it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Uh, And usually when I say that, what I put along with it is that my mother tried to teach me this as a child, and I really didn't get it. Why are people misunderstanding you sometimes at work? <laughs> so I, I feel like I've gotten to a point now uh, at work in sort of the last five to ten years where I try very hard. I slip up, certainly, but I try really hard to live by this motto of it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And I talk about it almost every day to the people on my team Certainly, if you look at my early career at Microsoft um, and how I developed at Microsoft, mm-hmm. you could certainly see that that was not a motto that I lived by. Right. As certainly as a child, I would say that one of the reasons why my, my mom was drilling it into me is because I probably had a bit of a weakness in this area. Yeah, you felt mis- she felt maybe you were misunderstood because 
she knew who you were, where your heart was, where your head was, but it didn't necessarily translate sometimes. Yeah. You know, the the words you choose, the way you deliver, you know, there's all different ways that you hear people talking about this. You know, it's easier to get it done uh, with honey than with vinegar. For sure. You know, I call it the velvet hammer. So tell me about Princeton. Obviously, grades and education was a value in your home. Grades uh, and performance were not a thing in, in our home. But learning and education was? Education absolutely was an enormous thing. I, I remember my father often telling me when I would ask him, when people would ask him, you know, why he went to work every day, uh, why he was building the business that he was building. His answer was always super clear. He said, I'm doing what I'm doing so that I can send my kids to whatever college they want to go to. Uh, that was his line. And I, I still remember it. Uh, he certainly instilled in us uh, a the, the value of education. I'd say that it was mostly about modeling. Mm-hmm. You know, I certainly saw, even though we didn't talk about it in our home, I saw performance around me. Mm-hmm. I saw incredible accomplishment all around me. My uncle went to Princeton and then founded one of the first biotech companies in the United States. My father went to Princeton and built our family business um, into this phenomenal business that it is today that my brother um, has taken over. My cousin went to Princeton. Oh my My, gosh, I didn't realize all of this. My my older brother went to Princeton. So if you had gone to some kind of B school, would you have felt like you were enough for your family? I mean, that sounds like a lot of pressure. I mean, thank goodness you got in, right? Again, I didn't feel it. You just was. I I honestly didn't feel it. You know, I applied to six different schools, and I remember sitting down with my dad. My my dad uh, took me. We we got in the car, and we drove to visit all the schools other than Stanford, Actually, we did drive to see Stanford, but we had to to fly first to visit his brother. And I remember feeling zero pressure. I remember actually walking through my safety school um, at the time. Harvard. uh, And and I remember having conversations with my father about what a wonderful school it was and how it would be a great place to be. Uh, You know, my parents were very deliberate, uh, and so they wouldn't have wanted to put any pressure on me because they believed that it had to come from within. Any drive that I would have forward would have to come from within. So you chose Princeton because it makes sense because your family obviously felt close to that school and it's an incredible education. So where did you think you were going to go after you graduated? I mean, Microsoft pulled you to Seattle. I knew probably for about four years before going to college. And then in my four years um, at college, I knew that I wanted to build a business. Uh, It's what I feel like I've been put on this earth to do. Uh, And I felt that way probably since about my 12th birthday. But between the ages of about eight and 12, if you'd asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have told you I wanted to be an open heart surgeon. Um, At age 12, kind of leading into my bar mitzvah, I don't remember what changed. I started to gain some insight into how long it would take to actually become a surgeon. And I was like, I can't wait that long to go to work because I loved working. 
I loved working on every free day that I would have at school. I'd literally go to my father's office and work in the office. I'd be manufacturing soap or cosmetics or working uh, in the office. I loved working. Yeah. And I still do. And your siblings are the same way? Today, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and so if you'd asked me through co- into college and through college what I wanted to do, I, I would say I, wanted, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to build a business. I, I sort of, you know, fell into Microsoft. I ended up doing an internship at Microsoft between my junior and senior year uh, at college. And I got out here and I literally fell in love with the Pacific really? Northwest. Yes, I, I fell in love with Microsoft. The I rain? fell in love with the Pacific Northwest. Well, you have to look at where I was coming from. Yeah. You know, compared More to relative. Montreal, you know, I still remember coming here for my interview in January. It was probably about 30 below zero when I left Montreal. And I came out here and I saw like people had ski boats sitting outside their house. And they weren't and, winterized and you covered. Know, and, yeah. And, and I could, I was like, oh my God, look, there are mountains up there. I could probably hear here in Seattle. I remember having this thought. I could probably snow ski and water ski on the same day. This is phenomenal. Like this is this is it's a so wonderland. True. I don't know that we should let this podcast get out beyond Seattle because it's true. It's this is so a true. wonderland. So I I fell in love with Seattle, um, and I also fell in love with Microsoft back then. How many employees were at the t- there at the time? So during my internship, when when I when I came on full time the next year, I think there were fourteen thousand. Um, I bet in the year of my internship, there was probably somewhere between thirteen and fourteen. So it was actually a lull in the mm-hmm. in the hiring uh, speed. And how would you describe the culture there at the time? I felt like it was made for me. So remember all those um, lessons that I needed to learn. Uh, Microsoft was a place where I felt like I could be me, like without those lessons being learned. Like you could be hardcore, you could be direct. If it's on your mind, you can say it. It That's doesn't matter how critical you're being. I mean, it was a hardcore environment. Very I've heard, hardcore. I've heard, and I've never worked there, but I have a lot of friends that work there. Yeah. So Microsoft has changed a lot from 1992 to oh, today. Yeah. Back in the early 90s, Microsoft was a very, very different place. Um, I'd say it stayed very consistent to that Microsoft that I uh, fell in love with probably through the late 90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it started a slow transition Mm -hmm. uh, to the much kinder, gentler place that it is right now. And uh, I'll be honest, I think a much better place. And what do you think of when you see a Microsoft resume today? Do you kind of gravitate toward it? Or do you have an opinion that kind of uh, a bias almost? I still believe that Microsoft um, hires some of the strongest people on this earth. To be on the product team uh, at Microsoft, you need to be exceptional. Now, I wouldn't say that it's differentiated from Amazon. I have a bunch of you know strong opinions about people at Amazon and the Amazon culture. In terms of the quality of the people, I'd say it's very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a company its size, uh, I think they're doing a wonderful, wonderful job hiring exceptional people. However, Microsoft is not entrepreneurial. Uh, The line I like to use is that at Microsoft, people are playing basketball on the moon. And just because someone knows how to play basketball on the moon doesn't mean that they could figure out 
well, certainly they don't know how to play basketball on Earth because on Earth you have this thing called gravity that tends to have a very uh, substantial impact on the game of basketball. So you just don't know whether or not the individual who has been successful playing basketball on the moon will be able to transfer those skills mm -hmm. to playing basketball on Earth. The analogy is doing business at Microsoft versus doing business in a startup are dramatically, dramatically different. Now, Amazon, on the other hand, um, you know, Amazon, I believe, is one of the most one of the greatest companies that has ever um, existed on I this agree. earth. Uh, they are phenomenal on so many different dimensions, and we can talk about that in more detail if, if, if you'd like. The people at Amazon do have an entrepreneurial bent to them. Mm -hmm. Life at Amazon is inherently entrepreneurial. And so I have actually found that there is a very strong correlation between uh, people who have been successful at Amazon and people who have the ability to be successful in a startup environment. Yeah, I agree. You just got to get them out of there. <laughs> Offer enough, you know, comp. It's tough. It's really tough. We pull a lot out of Amazon. And uh, a lot of people love it there. And just depends on the team that you get them out of. But generally speaking, such bright, incredibly hardworking people. Your experience at Microsoft, did you learn leadership skills and things about the culture that you wanted to carry on with you? And how did the whole Cozy thing come to be? I'm a huge Cozy user, just so you know. So well, thank, thank you. you. It makes my life as a working mom much easier. One company that I built and one company that that we're still very much in the process of building uh, has, in both cases, started with people. Um, as opposed to ideas. And this is a thing of mine. Um, I tend to start first thinking about, dreaming about, imagining the team that that we should put together as opposed to the idea. And I'm, I'm not making any comment on whether or not this is right or wrong. You know, there's a lot of incredibly successful people for whom a light bulb goes off and some great idea occurs to them mm -hmm. and then they go and they execute and it's phenomenally successful. When I started to think about leaving Microsoft, uh, the first thing that I did was I started to dream about who I would want to build a company with. That came even before we had identified the area that we wanted to build the company in. Interesting. Um, I knew that I it was time to leave Microsoft and I knew I wanted to start a business. But the first thing I dreamt about was who. And I identified my number one choice, uh, what, uh, a, a, a guy who I'd worked with on Microsoft Money for many years, uh, a brilliant product designer. His name is Jan Miksovsky. And he and I got together. And I, I bounced off of him this concept of building a company together. And we started to talk about that before we had any idea of what we wanted to do. And that went on for three or four months. When we decided to start the company, the only thing that we had identified was that we wanted to build an application that would be used in the home across all of the different screens that people had in their home. Back then, there was no iPhone. Uh, there were smartphones. They were from Microsoft and from Palm, and there was the BlackBerry. But, you know, this is life before iPhone or Android there were all these screens that were popping up, you know, LCD panels were becoming, you know, cheap and plentiful. And we imagined applications running across all of these screens that would help uh, people exist in, in their homes. And that was where we started. And that was it. That was all we started with. And people were like, really? That's not a business idea. That's not a product. That's not a vision. 
you know, it was a little bit of a vision. Can but... I ask you one question about Jan? Why Jan? So I only have a pattern of two cases now to operate on, right? There's the process that I went through for Cozy, and there was the process that I went through in sort of figuring out who I wanted to partner with for 98.6. So it's hard to create a trend around just two, but I'll, I'll tell you a quality that existed certainly in both cases. So I have this thing, which is I want to be learning every day. Like every single day I want to come into work and I want to be surrounded by people or in the case of choosing a partner, I want to have someone sitting right next to me who's going to teach me something every day. And Jan was uh, someone who I'd work with who I learned from all the time. I'd go into his office and he'd teach me stuff or he'd come into my office and ask me questions and by virtue of his feedback to me at the time, this is when we were at Microsoft, I would walk away learning something even though he came in to ask me something. Mm -hmm. Like people who I learn from ultimately give me energy. Totally. Um, and so, you know, I identified him as someone who I would just, I would love to be working with because I would learn so yeah. much from. Um, and the same happened when I started to dream about a co-founder for 98.6. I love that. So start with the people and then the idea. And so when you came up with the idea for Cozy, the end product, is that where it started? Believe it or not, there was no epiphany that this is the product. We went through this very organic process mm -hmm. where we we first identified the people who we wanted to build a product for. So we were focusing on the home and people in the home. After we started interviewing people in their home, we narrowed that focus to families. Mm -hmm. So that was the first big step that we made. We said, we're going to focus on building stuff for families. Mm -hmm. And then we started to interview families of all different shapes and sizes. And it was only by virtue of those interviews and starting to hear the need that came out of those interviews that we started to recognize that this area of calendaring was incredibly important. It's kind of funny because when we went into those conversations, we had all these really cool, innovative ideas around things that we could do for families, and like, really no. cool stuff. And they're like, no, yeah. like if, if you could just solve my silly calendaring problem, we actually were in, in one interview where there was a husband and wife we were interviewing and the wife literally opened up her pockets. She turned her pockets, two pockets inside out, and outflowed like 30 lists and stuff. Exactly. And she's like, those are interesting, great cockamamie ideas that you have over there. But if you could just solve this problem, yeah. like looking at all her lists. And or the honey-do honey do list or the, the like Costco she said, list. Like, like that would just change my entire life. Yes. I love her. And, and – um, I still actually uh, recall that meeting, um, but we didn't want to be in the calendaring business. We didn't want to be in the list-making business. That's not all that exciting or even seemingly innovative, but that's what families were telling us they needed. I love that. And so you uh, did this and bootstrapped. I know that you had some angel investors in the seed round. So did you go to them and say, hey, it's it's myself and Jan, and we don't have an idea, but we'd love some money? Or did you have the idea and then go? How did the fundraising part work in those early days? I think there is only one investor who would have ever written us a check given that initial vision that we had, which was nothing. <laughs> uh, and that was my family. My father and my brother 
um, and my father's brother, my my uncle um, from California, they bootstrapped us. They they wrote us a check uh, for um, I think it was five hundred thousand dollars. Oh, that's a lot. It's a lot of money, and they said that they would commit additional dollars in a real round, dollar for dollar. In other words, they were saying go get other people to believe. You, you in have this. to get other people to believe in this, and then we will match what other funds you're able to raise dollar for dollar up to some limit. Yeah, I was about um, to say they should probably put a limit on that since up, you ended up 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 to some limit. And you know, I I can safely say now we ended up bringing in some phenomenal investors in the next round. Mm-hmm. We we went out um, uh, Ben Arroyo was probably one of our lead investors in the next round. So uh, Ben Arroyo uh, made a, a what was back in that time a really, really big bet um, in, in us. Herman Sarkowski um, at the time uh, made a really big bet in us, and it was deeply, deeply appreciated. And then my family came along right next to them. Time Inc. acquired you in 2014. Is that right? Yeah. How did that come to be? And why them? Yeah. The... We, we had uh, great success with a number of uh, media publications. One of our first uh, media partners was Meredith. Uh, Meredith, who owned uh, Parents Magazine um, and also owned Good Housekeeping. They were very, very strong supporters. Uh, they created co-branded versions of, of Cozy and distributed it to all of their customers um, and would run advertisements in their magazines for Cozy. That was just, it was dramatic, uh, incredibly dramatic. These were brands that that stood for family, uh, stood for organization, stood for helping parents. Uh, and it turned out that there was a brand on the Time Warner front under Time Inc., uh, Real Simple, that's that, so weird because I was just thinking, what about Real Simple? That's right. Oh, okay. So, so it was the editors of Real Simple who first learned about Cozy and started to get really excited. Uh, yeah. Um, like the product was just perfect for the sort of things that they loved to talk yeah. to their readers about. Yes. Um, and that was the synergy. Uh, you know, Got it. All, okay. all of I didn't those put the link together because real simple makes perfect sense. That's okay. right. All of those um, media publishers, all of those content publishers, had been in this model of publishing content, and yet they were having a very hard time engaging. Yeah, their readers on a day to day basis, and unless they had a magazine out there, they wouldn't get engagement. They yeah. tried all these things online that didn't drive the engagement that they wanted. They looked at at, at cozy as a way to engage their base. So it was really about Synergy with the base. Got it. Synergy with There's their total audience. synergy. Perfect synergy. I, yeah, I'm like the target audience. That's it right. totally makes sense. Were you always knowing that you, there was a, a 3.0 and maybe even a 4.0 uh, next thing for you, which is 98.6? Absolutely, 100%. You're just like, I, you're like your dad. I'm just going to keep going. I, I have a few more runs in me. Yes. Uh, in fact, I would often talk to my brother and my father about just how many runs um, I, I I had in me. Because uh, it, it's possible. I, I remember I actually stood up in front of the entire team at 90.6 a few weeks ago. Uh, and I, I was talking about the fact that, you know, I was concerned that at some point I could get too old to do this. Not that I was too old, but that 
That they would think you were too that old? That they would think that I was too old. And so, yeah, there was this concept that, that I only had a certain number more in me. I really hope that's not the case because I would love to do this until the day I die. <laughs> uh, that's how much fun I'm having. But absolutely, in the six months leading up to the transaction with Time Warner, I started to dream. I always viewed the cozy experience as the experience that would give me the skills that I needed. That's right. Yeah. To to do it again. That's a nice first run. I love that. Absolutely. And so, how did you come up with uh, this idea? And you said it started with people. It was exactly. It was. It was a rinse and repeat, Shauna. Like literally, I I I ran it exactly the same way in that six month time leading up to the transaction. Uh, I was thinking about who I wanted to build a business with. And? That's what it was all about. And that's how I identified uh, my co-founder, Jeff. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I had a list. Uh, and he Was Jan an option? At, uh, Jan was off doing something else yeah. at, at that point. So I had to, I had to imagine um, new people. Uh, and that was a hard process. It was a very, very hard process, especially given the fact that all of the people who I was working with day to day, who I had so much respect for, were off the table. I needed to make sure I wasn't going to take those people out of Cozy. Those people were yeah. working at Cozy, and I knew that I would never in a million years recruit people out of Cozy uh, to start a business with me. Um, I also knew that I was going to stay at Cozy for a good solid year um, after the acquisition. So I knew that it was going to take about a year and a half to sort of put this all together. But I did start to dream. Um, and I identified uh, several individuals, but certainly at the very, very top of my list uh, was was Jeff. This is a big, huge problem that you and Jeff are going to try to solve. Tell our listeners what 98.6 is. 98.6 is setting out to address the primary care crisis in America. Simply put, by the year 2020, there's going to be a shortage of 20,000 physicians, primary care physicians in the United States, and that number is going to rise to 30,000 by the year 2025. On the flip side, we know that primary care makes a difference in people's health. So a few statistics to throw out there for your listeners. Uh, If you introduce a single primary care physician into a population of 10,000 people, you will reduce the mortality of that population by 5.3%. Not only that, but an individual who has a relationship with a primary care physician is 5% less likely to be hospitalized, 6% less likely to end up in surgery, and on average will save 30% on their healthcare costs over the course of their lifetime. Can we find a specialist also on 98.6? We're focused entirely on primary care. On primary care. So 98.6 is about making almost an unlimited number of primary care physicians available to everyone in America, and for that matter, in, in the long term, for everyone all around the world. And we do that with technology. So we're all about leveraging the capability of a single primary care physician to essentially multiply them uh, and make that single individual available instead of being only available to, say, 2,000 patients, which is what a typical primary care physician is available to. A single primary care physician at 98.6 could treat 25,000 patients or even in the fullness of time, 250,000 patients because of the underlying technology that we're building to 
enable them to dramatically extend their 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 capabilities. The way we do this is by delivering primary care through a mobile app. Uh, so I signed up on the mobile app. It seemed very easy. Yeah. So because our experience is entirely mobile and it's uh, primary care delivered primarily through secure private text messaging, mm-hmm. you're able to access primary care no matter where you are. You could be in the office. You could be lying in bed. You can be on the bus. You could be standing in line at a grocery store. Right. You could literally be anywhere. The, the point is that we're bringing primary care to you no matter how you live, no matter where you live, so that you can access it not only when you need it, but also often. We want you to be able to, to be right there in you know, in your pocket. What's the prescription situation? Can they prescribe? Absolutely. We can prescribe medication. So is that monitored? You know, some it's, doctors are more kind of over-prescribers. It's, it's monitored very closely. We, we review uh, north of 50% of our cases. We're building technology right now that will enable us to review 100%. Of, of the cases through 98.6. We track the number of prescriptions that are being written very, very closely. In fact, we, we are lower than the national average in an ambulatory setting. Uh, we are dramatically, dramatically lower, uh, like by a factor of three uh, than the average in a typical telemedicine setting. Uh, we have uh, an antibiotic uh, stewardship program that we've instituted because we believe deeply that antibiotics are being overprescribed in the and general o- population. The, the opioid, That's absolutely yeah. right. So we will not prescribe any controlled substances. So opioids are out. We take prescriptions. Seriously, it's part of the high quality care that we deliver by virtue of our modality. We have the ability to see absolutely everything that is happening between the physician, all of our physicians are full-time employees of 98.6. Mm-hmm. They're board certified, uh, permanent members of the team. They go through the same interview process. And how do you recruit them? It's it's actually uh, coming from a recruiter. I know that when you and I met originally, you were like, give me anyone, I can get them, and I'm seeing it. You're getting like just killer people on your team. But doctors is a whole different beast. That's a, that's a completely different thing than getting some, an, an engineer or an executive assistant. One could argue that it's harder. Um, I don't actually think it's harder because we are uh, recruiting these individuals out of jobs that most of them hate. Uh, Their quality of life uh, in primary care is terrible. Uh, They are being overworked. They're being underpaid. They're being underappreciated. I mean, you can look at all the statistics. There are third-party surveys that have been done Primary care physicians um, have the lowest job satisfaction of all physicians in the U.S. market. That's the reason why we're headed to the shortage we are. They have really, really tough jobs. They have to be incredibly dedicated. In fact, when you look at their dedication to their jobs, it's the highest. Of course it is because it needs to be that high for them to put up with all of the issues that they have to deal with. These folks are spending substantially more time every day. Uh, So the average amount of time that a physician spends, the amount of work that they dedicate to a single patient, we see numbers between 30 and 45 minutes. That's the total amount of time they dedicate to a single patient. Do you know how much time they spend with the patient? Less than 10. Yeah. So all of this time they're spending 
on patient stuff, not doing what it is that they want that to they do. That they love. Okay, what, what they so love. So do they get to work out of their home? Our they physicians can work, can work our, our physicians can work from absolutely anywhere. Uh, I'm going to tell we, my physician. We license our physicians in all 50 states plus D.C. And so how can our listeners become patients on 98.6? Just download the app? All they need to do is download 98.6, 98-P-O-I-N-T-6. Yeah, because I went to 98.6. That's and right. Like, and it's $20 for unlimited access to primary care for the first year. Um, that's our introductory offer. And then it's $120 per year every year after that, which is still less than you're likely paying for a single primary care visit. And there are no fees. So other than your subscription fee, you know, the $20 for the first year, every time you use 98.6, there's no charge. It's $20 for the first year, unlimited access to the platform. I love We don't this. bill your insurance. We don't collect money from your employer. This is brilliant. That's the fee. So can I choose, or is this any doctor who's on call? We are working very hard to build a relationship between you, Shauna, and 98.6, the service, so that you don't even care who the doctor is. I'm agnostic because I just get That's great right. service. It's not about the individual doctors. Now, the doctors are behind every diagnosis and treatment decision that we make. Um, but the doctors understand that the relationship that they're building is the relationship between the patient and 98.6. They're almost supposed to disappear or be operating in the background yeah. to enable that relationship to happen. That's what that's what enables us to deliver the on-demand care that we deliver at the price point that we're able to deliver it, yeah. uh, that the doctors are in the background. They make all the final decisions, but the relationship that you're establishing is between you and 98.6. Well, thank you for starting this company because I think people are going to be healthier. They're going to be living longer. They're going to be working in a healthier environments because they're not going to be getting their colleagues sick. Um, so that's great. And I know that we're limited on time, but I do want to ask you a couple of parenting questions. Okay. You've got three kids. Yep. Right? How old are they now? So Benjamin, my oldest, is 20. He's going to be 21 in January. Uh, my middle is Noah, and uh, he just turned 18. And my youngest is Dahlia, and she just turned 15. I love that name, Dahlia. That's like one of my all-time favorite names. How did you and Bonnie meet? It's actually not that exciting a story. So not only did Bonnie and I both go to the same high school, but we also attended the same synagogue. And I used to work at synagogue um, on the high holidays, and I used to sit up on the um, on the altar, on, on the bimah, and I would always see Bonnie sitting with her sister and her mom in the congregation. And I, I would say that I had eyes for Bonnie even back then, I mean, I was 13 or 14 years old. Bonnie was a year ahead of me at, in high school. And so, you know, you don't talk to girls who are a year ahead of you in high school. But as luck would have it, Bonnie and I ended up on a trip to Israel together. Um, so there's this institution that you go to after high school in Quebec called CEGEP. It's in between high school and university. And there's two years of CEGEP. I only did one year. Bonnie did two years because she went to McGill. I was going away to college, so I only did one year. But the second semester of that one year, um, I went on this trip with, it was called the Dawson Program to Israel, where we basically did a semester in Israel that counted towards this school. And Bonnie went on the same trip. Nice. Um, and that's where we became best friends. Uh, so we were very close friends. So Bonnie and I were were um, platonic friends before we started dating. 
and then the year following that, I went away to university, and it was during that year that we started dating. That is an uh, so exciting we were story. Long, so we were actually long distance for the first several years of our relationship, even though we spent summers together. I like that story. It sounds like you guys have very strong foundational roots in Judaism and that you probably were raised similarly. And so that's translated to your parenting style. What are you most proud of as a parent? Uh, it's a constant work in progress. I believe that uh, over time, yes, it's true that parenting you know, is easy and then it gets really, really, really hard. Uh, and then over a very long period of time, it starts to get a little bit easier. Like the 21-year-old is starting to get easier now? It starts to get a little bit easier, but uh, I feel like you can never really check out. No. You know, like I even see some of the things that my father does. You know, I've been able to watch my father change his parenting style as I went from being 20 to, you know, I turned 49 this year. And so I've been studying his parenting and my mother's parenting over those years uh, because I would like to relentlessly improve on that. They've done a, a wonderful job. I, I can't speak to the product of their work, but certainly I can speak to what it looked like they were doing. And, and you know, we're trying to learn from that. But we're only in the middle of it right now. And there's an incredible amount of work ahead. But I'd say that there are... There are three three core things that that uh, that translate into what was good parenting for us. We've certainly done our best. Yeah, that's that's all I can say. Number one is modeling. Um, I, I believe that that at the end of the day, what you say to your kids uh, is much less powerful than what you do in front of your kids. Um, I know that I learned almost everything that I did learn over my lifetime uh, through the modeling that people were doing in front of me. And so Bonnie and I recognize that we are, whether we like it or not, and sometimes we don't like it, uh, that we are literally modeling behaviors and, and values every single day. Um, and we think long and hard about that. Then the second thing is what you talk about. Uh, which is different from modeling, right? Those are the values that you talk about. It's the problems that you talk about. I will consistently, I think sometimes our talent team at 98.6 is surprised by the problems that we have at work that I bring home uh, and talk about uh, in front of my kids at the dinner table. Um, I learned an incredible amount at the dinner table growing up. And so we try to make our dinner table a place to learn. I bring problems home and we talk about them, you know, hard problems, really hard problems, problems about gender identity, you know, problems about spending money and where to spend money and where not to spend money. Like we have tough discussions like that where we can talk to the values uh, that, that we believe are important. So that's n number two. And then th the third thing, you know, I talk about getting behind our kids. And I'd say that this has probably been one of the most challenging things for us to do because we're living in an environment where so many parents have decided. And again, I'm not judging. I'm only saying what we've decided for us that is different than what they've decided for them. You know, there's a lot of parents out there, and it might be the right way, who are getting in front of their kids. 
who are leading their kids by being in front, urging their kids to do this or that, or leading their kids towards the university that they're going to go to. They're really in the front seat. We've decided to be behind our kids. Our oldest son, uh, Benjamin, uh, decided after high school to take uh, two gap years and join the Israeli army, uh, become a paratrooper. And knowing Bonnie and me and the values that we have, everyone always just assumes that he did this because we told him to, which couldn't be further from the truth. That's not the first place my head would have gone. Good. Um, I would have said you raised him to believe in to be pro-Israel, but I wouldn't have said that you said next you go to the IDF. Yes. Um, I wouldn't even go so far as to say that we raised him to be pro-Israel. We certainly gave him experiences. Again, going back to that modeling, we gave him experiences, that's right, that would hopefully lead to him becoming a Zionist um, and falling in love with Israel. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We we worked really hard at that. Where is he in that? I mean... So he finished his military service last May, and he's now a freshman at Dartmouth. Wow. Okay. I don't even think I knew that, by the way. That's big. Yeah. Another conversation, which is also something I want to ask you about, because you do a lot of philanthropic work, you and Bonnie, which also thank you. Um, how I do think, you I think choose... Bonnie does much, much more than well, I do. Well, together you decide how your time is going to be spent, how your money is going to be sent, your resources, who you're going to get behind and why. How does that process happen? Because I'm in this stage where suddenly I'm getting pulled in different directions. I'm finding I'm a yes person and not realizing that I need to slow down and figure out what I'm really passionate about. That's right. So what are your kind of few things that you really love? Again, for better or for worse, the list continues to grow. Um, I'd say that it's we've managed to ensure that it grows very slowly. Um, but... It, it just, it has to naturally grow. There are so many things in the Jewish community that we care about and we care about Israel. Uh, but we've made the decision that there's going to be a small handful of things that we support both with our time and with our resources. And we're going to keep that list as small as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, what are those things? So, you know, we started closest to home, and then we started to move out. So when we started, it was the Jewish Federation. Mm-hmm. And we also have this difficult time. Once we begin supporting an organization, we have a really hard time dialing back that support. Even as other people are moving from one you know, thing that they love to another, uh, we, we're pretty cautious because we realize, we recognize that when we add a new... Uh, philanthropy uh, to the list that it's probably going to be on the list forever. Within our first year here, we started giving to the Federation and they've never come off the list. And we've continued to increase um, our support on that front. After the Federation, obviously, you know, the next significant philanthropy uh, was the kids' school. Um, And we started to support the Jewish Day School. And both Bonnie and I are products of Jewish Day School, so we will continue to support the Jewish Day School. Uh, I expect that it will be on our short list for a very, very long time. Uh, Then it was the Jewish Community Center. I'd actually say the Jewish Community Center probably came before the Jewish Day School because our kids went uh, to the pre-K program um, at the JCC, and we continued to be uh, significant supporters of the JCC. 
from there, we started to reach uh, a, a little bit outside of the of the local community. We always care deeply about Israel, but we started to get exposure to some of the incredible things that were happening uh, with respect to Israel. Uh, and the next organization that that we decided as a family to to get behind uh, was Brothers for Life, uh, which I know we support together. Uh, and that started with Chaim, you know. Chaim is, is the founder and certainly the visionary of Brothers for Life, but ultimately their mission to not only support injured soldiers in Israel, but also to expose communities all around the world to the work that Israel is doing for all of us uh, through these soldiers is literally magical. And then right after that, Another Israel cause that I know you've had some exposure to as well um, largely fell out of recognizing uh, that our kids were on their way to college um, and the the anti-Israel sentiment that they were going to experience at college was going to be overwhelming even for a former paratrooper of the Israel Defense Forces. Um, and so we identified an organization uh, here in town. It's a national organization called Stand With Us that literally with their feet on the ground um, are are fighting uh, anti-Israel sentiment, not only on university campuses. It's actually happening in high schools. It's happening in middle schools. And That's I bet great. before we know it, it's going to happen in elementary schools as well. Uh, you know, that, that at its not. core is the dissemination um, of false information that really, when you really look at um, at the at the BDS movement, um, the the anti-Israel movement of today, it is at its core veiled, unadulterated anti-Semitism. You know, well, another we, thing that I'm grateful that you're you and Bonnie are putting your your time and resources into. I mean, all of these are sounds like Jewish causes, and um, so. As a Jewish person, I'm grateful. We've made the decision that the number of Jewish donors are limited. The addressable market, so to speak, for support of these uh, of these critical philanthropies is limited only to Jewish communities. And so in so much as we are prioritizing our funds, we've decided that those funds are going to be exclusively driven towards these uh, these Jewish and Israel-oriented philanthropies. It doesn't mean that all of the other work, whether it be the Red Cross or the Breast Cancer uh, Association or the myriad of other very important causes, uh, it, it they are important as well. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. We though. just ultimately need to prioritize, and this yeah. is where we've decided to, to prioritize our um, our resources. Yeah. Well, I could spend all day. We could just keep going, and we might need a donut because we're going to get low blood sugar. Um, <laughs> but I'm super happy that we got to spend time. I feel like I got to know you better. And hopefully our listeners did too, because there's um, so much to you, aside from just being the kick-ass executive father and husband and uh, philanthropist. Thank you, Shauna. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. 
Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.